Tonight's scripture comes from two different passages. Um, it will first be in 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 17, and then Luke 1, 30, 32 through 33. So whenever you get to 2 Samuel, you can stand for the reading of God's word. Second Samuel 7, 12 through 17. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will rise up, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took took it from Saul, whom I put away from, from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all, with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. And we'll turn to Luke 1, 32-33. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the, Lord of, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father. David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his king and his kingdom and of his kingdom there will be no end. This is the word of the Lord. Well, familiarity with the Christmas season can certainly give us some uh, motivation or maybe uh, need for uh, refocusing our hearts and minds on the importance of why we celebrate Christmas every single year. Um, In America, there's a million different things vying for our attention and vying for our our dollars and our time and energy and effort. And all of them uh, tend to come into conflict with really the main purpose behind Christmas, uh, which is that we are celebrating the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, his advent to us on earth. And so uh, as we start our time together reading these texts, 2 Samuel 7 and Luke chapter 1, I have a very simple point for the next 20 minutes or so. There is, in fact, a promised king, and that should affect everything about how we live our lives. There's a promised king who just changes the trajectory of our lives, how we look to the future, how we view ourselves, and how we view eternity. Uh, That Jesus is the king who was predicted and who has come is a a radically life-altering reality that is found in the Hebrew scriptures and uh, confirmed in the Christian New Testament. So uh, that's the point. That's where I'm going to go. In order to prove that, uh, we're going to start in that 2 Samuel chapter 7 text. So if you want to flip back there, uh, I invite you to. um, uh, 2 Samuel 7, uh, what we find is uh, David, towards the end of his life, towards the end of his reign as king, He's had quite a successful career so far. He has uh, endured the several uh, years of Saul's persecution of him, somehow survived that. Uh, He's defeated enemies, as uh, the Israelites would sing of him. Uh, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousand. David's the one who ultimately puts the Philistines to rest as a threat against Israel. Um, And moreover, David is the one who finally builds a a palace for the kingdom. So he's the first one to have what we would call a stable reign as king. 
and he really sets up Israel for the future success and peace that they are going to have in, in the land. Even though Israel eventually forfeits that peace, David is the one who establishes that peace. And so what we find here in 2 Samuel is David, towards the end of his life, uh, realizing that all of the things he has accomplished are about to fall short because uh, something he should have done, or he considers himself to, uh, he thinks of himself as uh, needing to have done it, is build the tabernacle uh, into a temple. So the tabernacle is the temple, Israel traveling in the wilderness, and they want to set up shop to worship God. They have this elaborate tent-like structure to worship God in. And at this point in Israel's history, David has a palace, the cities are protected, there's peace in the land in general, but there's still no temple to go and worship God in. The temple is not yet built. And this is what David uh, realizes, and so what happens is he goes to Nathan the prophet, uh, or he, he goes and he, he says to himself, I'm going to build a house for God. It's not fitting that I am uh, living in a palace and the tabernacle uh, is still a tent dwelling. It's not reflective of the, pro, uh, the blessings that God has given to us. And so uh, if you look, for example, at verse two of the text, um, the king, that's David, said to Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar. That's a strong building material but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And so David is wrestling with the fact that he lives in a secure dwelling place and the tabernacle uh, is still existing and that's where the ark of God dwells. And so he sees this as a problem. And so he goes to say he's going to build uh, a house for God, but the response that he gets is quite interesting. Uh, The response that he gets from God is, David, you don't need to build a house for me, uh, a temple, I will build a house for you. And there's a wordplay in there, but uh, house can mean multiple things, even in our English use of that term. You could mean a building, uh, or uh, if we were to add the modifier a household in, in English, we would say, oh, that's not a building, that's a family dynasty that's going on. And so that's, what, that's exactly what, what God says to David here. Um, he, he says, instead of David needing to build God a house, God is going to build David a house, and this house will reign over all the earth for eternity. It's quite a striking promise. And so you see that in verse uh, 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your father, so this is not a promise to David, this is a promise to David's offspring, I will raise up your offspring after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, he will be to me a son, And if you look down to verse uh, 15, or sorry, verse verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. A lot of of long time frames in view there, right? Forever, eternity, for all time. That's all in view here. So this is the promise to David. Now, uh, if you were to ask yourself the question, who's David's offspring and who is this promise for? the most natural person who comes to mind in the text is Saul, or not, sorry, not Saul, Solomon. Solomon is David's heir. He's the one who takes the throne right after David, and he's the one who builds the temple. He builds the Solomonic temple, which is this gigantic, beautiful structure that people from all the earth come in to see and observe, and they, Solomon basically reigns in the golden era of Israel's history. And so it seems as though this is something that God is speaking about in, in reference to Solomon, but a brief survey of, of history would show that actually Solomon's dynasty ends with the death of Solomon. 
And after Solomon's death, his son, who takes over after him, divides the kingdom into two, and from then on, the kingdom is split. And so this everlasting kingdom and throne is surely not in reference to Solomon, falls short of that glory, and so it, it still awaits a fulfillment. That's uh, in view of the Old Testament. And uh, just to give you a, a sampling of this, Israel is, in the Old Testament, told that they should pursue a king. It's, it's often commented that Israel was never supposed to have a king. God was supposed to be their king. But actually, in Deuteronomy 17, we're told exactly that Israel is, in fact, supposed to have a king. Uh, but they're supposed to have a king in the kind of way that God establishes a king for them. And this king is given certain qualifications. He's supposed to lead them. Uh, he's supposed to guide them into the law of God. And the, the king that they're supposed to set up for them is supposed, to see, is supposed to be someone who exemplifies virtue. And so if you'll briefly look with me uh, a couple of verses at Deuteronomy chapter 17, um, you'll see some of those qualifications. And, uh, and both David and Solomon and Saul, before David, fall short of these qualifications in Deuteronomy uh, 17. This, uh, uh, these instructions lay out for us uh, what Israel was to expect from a future king to come. So this is Deuteronomy chapter 17. Um, I'll begin in verse 14, but we're going to kind of skip around in that text. So verse 14 is where it starts. Uh, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and you dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. It will be one from among your brothers. You shall set as a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you uh, who is not your brother. So one qualification is a king needs to be an Israelite. Okay? But it gets a little bit more narrow. Uh, verse 16, he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt to acquire many horses. So the king has to keep the people out of Egypt and he can't exploit his position of power for wealth or for personal gain. Uh, he should not acquire for himself excessive gold or silver. That's verse 17. And he should not acquire for himself many wives, lest his heart turn away. So uh, David has multiple wives. Solomon, multiple wives. Solomon has more wives than David does. And so both of these men fall short of these previous uh, statutes. And there's, there's other commandments, but in general, what the king is supposed to do is lead Israel into obedience. And there's these certain parameters they're supposed to hit. Well, David is promised that one of his offspring will be this king. And then the first description we get of Solomon when he takes the throne is in 2 Kings chapter 3. And uh, the author of 2 Kings, or the author of uh, 1 Kings, sorry, 1 Kings chapter 3, he, he doesn't even let you get uh, a couple of verses into Solomon's reign without letting, you so, without letting you know that Solomon is also disqualified from being the king. So this is in uh, 1 Kings chapter 3 and uh, verse 1. Remember, one of the qualifications of the king from Deuteronomy 17 is he's supposed to lead the people away from Egypt and he's not supposed to return back that way. Well, 1 Kings chapter 3, this is, uh, it reads like this, verse 1. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And he took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. So Solomon does a lot of great things, builds the temple, but the, one of the first things that the author of Kings is telling us is that Solomon is not the king who Israel was supposed to expect. He marries Pharaoh's daughter, 
And so he, he quite literally aligns himself with Egypt, the very thing the king was told not to do. So Solomon is not this king, even though he looks very closely like that king. And in fact, if you were to read the rest of Kings and Chronicles, you will discover there's no king who quite fits that description. They all fall short and disqualify themselves in some way or another. Now, there's, mother, there's other examples from Solomon, but uh, they're close. Solomon and David are close, but they're not a, a perfect fit for this prophecy. And the claim of the New Testament authors, the claim that we read in the Gospel of Luke, is that Jesus is from the line of David and is this promised king. So Jesus is claimed to be the rightful king. In fact, uh, that text from Luke chapter 1 it says it uh, explicitly. This is from uh, Simon who's prophesying, or sorry, this is uh, from the angel Gabriel who's prophesying to Mary about what the child will be like. Uh, this is from Luke chapter 1 verse uh, 32 and 33. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. That echoes the same promise to second, in 2 second Samuel 7. And he, that is Jesus, will reign over the house of Jacob forever, that is, over the nation of Israel forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. That, that matches the description of the kingdom will be into eternity. There, there will be no end to this reign. And, that, and the claim of the, of the New Testament is that this is talking about Jesus, that Jesus is this rightful king. And I think the question that, that we have to ask of the New Testament is twofold. One, is Jesus this king? I think the rest of the New Testament writings would, would vindicate this, that he matches the genealogical description. He leads the nation out of slavery and bondage of a greater form than any other king could deliver them from. So is Jesus this king? I would say yes. The New Testament clearly answers that question. However, there's another question, one I think maybe more suited to our modern times, which is, is having a king actually good news? <laughs> is having a king actually a good thing? Uh, if uh, Next year, it's going to be a presidential election. Um, we don't have kings in this country. And we would say for good reason, right? Kings abuse power and they're relatively vindictive against those who are against them. So we don't. We say the better system is to vote. Let the, let the people speak. And that whoever the people choose, that is who will govern us. And uh, so it, I think it's honestly fair for us to say that most Westerners, when they read about Jesus being a king, will immediately think of the abuse of power and the problems that come with having a king. And we can immediately react and say, a king is not at all good news. We know how kings are. We know how they treat their people. But what Jesus models for us is, is that he is, in fact, the king, but he's the kind of king that if you had to have a king, you would want to have. Actually, he's the kind of king that even if you didn't want to have a king, you would want to have. He's the kind of king who comes and who lays down his life for his subjects so that they would be saved from the impending destruction. He's the kind of king who takes enemies and converts them into his loyal servants, not by force or by coercion, but by dying for them sacrificially. He's the kind of king who comes and he washes the feet of his disciples. So even though he's a king, he humbles himself and takes on the form of a servant. So if you were to imagine your ideal king, uh, the king would have your best interest at heart. And that's the exact description of who Jesus is as a king. He has our best interest at heart. But the gospel isn't just the message that Jesus is the king. It's also the message that he's the king 
who makes possible access to his kingdom. Right? So uh, if I was to tell you that there's a king coming and you're on the opposing side, you're an enemy of this king, that's not even good news, even if, even if that king is coming and some people find that to be good news, let's say angels and things like that. What about sinful beings who would be under the reign of this king? Well, that's not good news at all because, well, then this king is your enemy and he has power now to overthrow you and to destroy you. And so the message of the gospel is not just that Jesus is king, uh, the message of the gospel actually nuances this claim of kingship and says that Jesus is the kind of king who builds his own kingdom from the ground up by means of his own handiwork, by means of his own blood, by means of his own spirit, by means of his own effort, energy, and work. He builds this kingdom from the ground up. And he builds us into this kingdom. He builds us, as the New Testament even says, into a temple uh, that helps to worship God together. So the claim of the New Testament is that the king is in fact good news, and he's good news for a number of reasons, and here's where we get kind of practical about the Christmas season. The promised king is in fact good news, and it's good news for a bunch of different reasons, but one of the reasons is that Jesus as king deals with uh, our enemies. So uh, we don't just have Jesus as a friend who helps coddle us when we're struggling through hard times. and, and even if Jesus was just a friend who could essentially sit with us through the hard times, uh, he's not actually powerful then, in that case, to deal with our, our issues or our problems or the things that actually harm us in this world. But one of the things that the New Testament says is that he's, he's a king who has our best interest at heart, and he listens to his people, but he's also powerful. He's not just, he's not just a friend who can listen to our hardships. He's a king who can solve our problems. He can solve our hardships. And one of the hardships he solves is... Well, he deals with sin and death, the very thing that threatens every single person who's ever lived. Uh, He he conquers sin and death, one of the central claims of the New Testament. He conquers uh, sin, which means that he doesn't just conquer uh, us to to be into his kingdom, but he also rules in our hearts to allow us to continually put sin to death. This is one of the central claims of the New Testament when we talk about the hope that we have in sanctification, growing in holiness, is that Jesus works in us to extend the reach of his kingdom, to grow us into obedience and love and affection for him. And he also deals with our enemies. So as we go out into the world, uh, sin and death, which might be more like abstract, metaphorical kind of enemies, and also those who genuinely harm his people, think about Herod, he, he deals with those people, and he does not deal with them kindly. The enemies of God's people will be put to death by God because he is a just king so that there is no injustice in his kingdom. There's this, uh, there's this picture at the end of uh, the Lord of the Rings series that comes to mind when I think about what this hopefulness of a kingdom looks like. And uh, if you remember, you know the story where Sam and Frodo are kind of trekking through this very dangerous land riddled with orcs and, and enemies and, and threats from all sides. And they get to Mount Doom, they throw the ring into the mountain, they eventually destroy it, and they're on their way back to the Shire, and one of the concerns that they have, the whole fellowship has, is that the journey back is going to be just as dangerous as the journey into the dangerous land. And there's this note of hope, though, that comes in the text, where, uh, where one of the characters says, it won't be dangerous anymore, because there is a real king now, and he will soon put all the roads in order. So, uh, this is a little bit what it's like when we're a Christian 
and sin has now been defeated, and we think, how can we go on in life, struggling against sin and warring against enemies and, and powers? How can we do that ongoing? Well, because the road forward after Christ's defeating of sin and death is not a dangerous road for us anymore. In fact, the greatest danger that looms over all of us, death itself, has been dealt with. So it's not really a dangerous prospect to be under this king's rule. It's the kind of ideal kingdom that we would long for. And so what Christmas is for us is a, it's a reminder of the hope that we have uh, under this king's rule. So Jesus, as the promised king, changes a lot of things for us. It changes how we approach sin. It changes how we view threats in our life, enemies. And when I say enemies, uh, you can think basically anything that makes your life miserable and terrible. Uh, depression, decay, death, sickness, uh, all the kinds of injustices in the world, all those kinds of things. But Jesus is not just the kind of king who can deal with material uh, sins or material brokenness. He can deal with spiritual brokenness, health brokenness, all of it. He can solve all those problems because he's, he's not just king, he's also creator. He can put all these things, to, he can put all these things right. He uh, deals justice perfectly because he has conquered sin and death. And he is working to put this world right by means of his spirit and by means of himself. And so the advent of Jesus as king is not just an announcement that Jesus is king. And so we should just go on living our life and hope that in the future at some point things will get better. It's this declaration that Jesus is king. And we don't just hope that things will get better. We know confidently that Jesus can put these things right. How do we know he can defeat death? He himself has resurrected. How do we know he can defeat sin? He himself never sinned. How do we know that he can uh, condescend to our weakness and love us even while we are so broken? Well, that's exactly what he did for Peter and for the woman at the well and for a great host of people who he has modeled for us exactly what being in his kingdom is like. It's restful, it's rejuvenating, and it's freeing from all the entrapments of sin and work. And so Jesus is, yes, the promised king, and it's good news that Jesus is the promised king. And so I encourage you, as you go now into the rest of the holiday season, out with family, with friends, as you, sit, uh, as you go through all the hustle and bustle of buying things, exchanging gifts, everything, that this one central truth about Christmas would be retained. That Jesus is, in fact, a promised king, and that should really shape how we approach Christmas. More so than... Uh, whether or not we are on the naughty or nice list, whether or not we got what we wanted or didn't want. Um, and if you're still doing gifts, that's great. That's not a bad thing. But the, the thing that can get drowned out in all of that is the actual central claim of Christmas, which is that we look forward to Jesus' past coming as a hallmark for our longing for his future coming, where all things will, will be put to death, not just as a future prospect guaranteed that they're done for, but where they will be actually done for into eternity. That's our hope. That's what we pray for. That's what we long for. And uh, in a few moments, that's what we're going to be singing about all together, to, to not just long for Christ's coming in the, in the first instance, but also hoping for his future coming where he will put all things right. So with that, let me just close us in a word of prayer. Our Father, you are the rightful king, the true king, the one who is heir of David's throne and the one whom we are to believe on. Lord, we thank you for your grace to extend mercy to us who are far off, to bring us into your kingdom, into your light, into your grace. Lord, we know that with you, 
there is forgiveness of sins. We know that with you there is mercy. And we know that with you, all wrongs, sins, wickedness, and brokenness in this world will be put right because you have shown us that it is possible. We pray this all together in Christ's name. Amen.